Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... It was almost the dream farm that came up at the wrong time. I was still in hotels. I was at a wool-growing property as well that I just bought. just seemed too good to miss. I had to have it. So I was really way up, 100% borrowed, and then the wheels fell off everything, and I thought, well, this is going to be the end. I thought, oh, well, I'll have to start again if it does come to the end, so we just went for it. It was a white knuckle ride, <laughs> dearie way. How on earth does a cattle baron and spud farmer on the windswept, pristine coast of northeast Tasmania actually write himself into the hallowed annals of Australian golfing greats of the past two decades. Richard Sattler may not be a household name in his own country, but to those aficionados who've made the pilgrimage to his Barnboogle champion golf courses on the remote, windy, yet beautiful Tassie coast, Richard Sattler is right up there on a pedestal with those greats. He's a kind of king of the links. Why? Well, he took a huge risk and with a few others saw the potential to develop his coastal farm into a golf course. And not just any golf course. Richard Sattler knew it had to be a champion course, a top quality design to rival some of the best in the land. But even he didn't foresee how Barn Boogle from the get-go would capture the hearts of golfers. Barnboogle quickly climbed up the all-important rankings, where it's now rated in the top 50 golf courses in the world, rivaling the best that Scotland, Ireland and the US have to offer. That's a stunning success in anyone's language. But the journey of how former shearer and humble potato farmer Richard Sattler built Barnboogle to that rarefied top class and keeps expanding it is quite a story. Oh, and did I mention he isn't even a golfing nut? He knew very little about golf when he got into it, and in his own assessment, he plays a fairly mediocre round. I hope you enjoy part one of my chat with golfing empire builder, Richard Sattler. Welcome, Richard Sattler, and thank you for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Pleasure. It's really great to be talking to you as, well, I'm going to call it the Barnboogle Golf Complex in the beautiful wilds of northeast Tasmania. Not that I've been there, but, uh, you know, it's a completely homegrown but distinctly world-class group of golf and links courses that you've built up to become so successful both domestically and on the international stage. If we can just start with, can you give us a picture of what Barn Boogle is right now? How many players you have come to play there? Where your courses sit in world golf rankings and how big is the Barn Boogle complex? Yes, we're up to three courses now. We've got the original Barn Boogle Jones and then Lost Farm and now Boogle Run, which is a short course, which is not very common in Australia. There are par three courses, but a short course is just 14 holes with two par fours and 12 par threes. So it's sort of something a little bit different, more common in the States, but not here. So it was done to be different and just to try and fill in the experience. So we just keep tiptoeing in and whatever we think the resort needs, we build it. 
How many players do you reckon you've had through playing there, either each year or in total since you began? I wouldn't know what the progressive total is, but we really aim for sort of thirty to 40,000 wow. per year with the two courses. That's in total. Last year, naturally, it was a forgotten year. Yeah. But this year's rebounded beautifully, so we've had a couple of record months, uh, very consistent with this Australian tourism yeah. situation. Oh, look, we'll get into more detail about that a little bit later, but just sticking with this picture of what Barn Boogle is now, where do your courses sit in the world golf rankings? We say they're comfortably both in the top 50 in the world. They vary between so many different rankings in Europe, US, but we always say they're comfortably in the top 50. It's really an extraordinary achievement that you've done there. Just to help listeners, and I have to admit I'm not a golf player, but my husband's just recently played there, my brother-in-law and with a gang, and they loved it. What is the difference, Richard, between a Lynx course and any other golf course? Because, of course, your main one, Barn Boogle, is June Golf Lynx. Now, they're all actually Lynx, the three courses, and Lynx originated as the link land between the coast and the good farmland. So a lot of the English and Scottish coastal areas had sand dunes blowing in from the coast. So you had a lot of rough, poor farming ground, I suppose you could say, between the coast and their actual good farming land. That was always the link land that linked the two together. And I think back in the origin, the farmers let people go out and play golf there because it didn't interfere with the farming operation. Oh, amazing. So it basically originated as link land. So the idea is that to follow the sort of lay of the landscape, really, even though you've improved on that, as I understand it, you have to walk Barn Boogle. There are no carts. Why did you decide to do that? I think it's much more natural, but probably the main reason was a practical one, that the, because it's on, built on sand, it becomes a very fragile country and the less machinery you have on the better. And notoriously, people that are driving a cart for the first time are pretty silly and they're <laughs> likely to do anything and they rip the ground around. And we've seen instances where they've gone out, usually we allow a few carts on there on medical advice but they now have to have a caddy drive them, one of our caddies drive them because they're reckless and they only have to spin and break through to the sand and you've got a repair job. So it really is to stay with the original concept of walking, but also from a practical term of not having too much machinery on the property. Yeah, exactly. Now, it's also access for all. Is that right? Why did you decide to go that route? Is that to, I guess, basically attract more people? Uh, We're remembering I wasn't a golfer. And we're in an isolated area, so the chances of getting a lot of members was fairly slim. And I had a good friend that built some resorts in Tasmania and he originally did Cradle Mountain Lodge and now he's got Pump House Point. Mm. And I looked at that and I thought, now that's a great concept. So if we could be the wilderness resort for golf, we might be able to create our own market. And that's basically how it's worked. Fantastic. So that's really a snapshot today. Let's go back to the original, I guess it was a kind of a humble idea. Where did the idea of building a golf course on your farm come from? Because you were a potato farmer on a working farm when you began Barn Boogle Golf Courses, weren't you? Yeah, well, it's, that's part of the story, but the, probably the more factual one is that I'd done a lot of years in the hotel industry yeah. as well as being a rural background. And when I saw Barn Boogle, I thought, well, that sits perfectly with what I want out of life. It's a, a nice big rural property that I'd always dreamed of, and it's by the coast, and it's got a lot of tourism development potential. So really, golf was the opportunity to start the tourism development, but we always had a view that the property was good enough along the coastline 
to have some future tourism value. So that gave it added value and the attraction in the beginning. Yeah, right. So that was in your mind from the beginning to have this sort of tourism destination on this beautiful coastal stretch. Yep, we did a master plan back in 91 and then realised we were well before our time, so we just scrapped that and sat back and the recession was on and we were battling to keep our head above water, so we just um, flat out and didn't waste anything and sat back until the opportunity was there again before we moved. Right. So, sorry, you say you farmed flat out through the 90s until the golf idea was resurrected again. So, how did you sort of start with the golf idea? Well, originally we had had one in on our master plan called Lost Farm. Right. Then a young chap came to me and he said, oh, this would be great for a Lynx course. And I said, look, I'll lease you the land. Uh, I'll retain the land and I'll retain the tourism accommodation and infrastructure because I know it from my previous experiences, but if you want to build a course there, you can lease it. So he messed around for a while and then wanted to proceed with it. But as it turns out, in most grand ideas, there wasn't much money behind it. So I ended up having to un- underwrite the project. You did. Then ended up, I did, yep. So I ended up the landlord as well as the major shareholder. Wow. Okay. Well, we'll go to that in a sec. But this was what, around 2003, 2004? About 2001, we started negotiating on it. Now, you were not a passionate golfer, as I understand. In fact, I think you'd never played golf. So why why did you think this would work? What made you think that you could attract players to this dramatic and windswept, but, you know, nonetheless fairly remote part of northeast Tasmania to play golf? Well, when you looked at it and you look at opportunities in life and you've usually got to fit that opportunity into a mould that's likely to work. So if it's a, a wilderness resort, you've got to be in the wilderness type of thing. So when you look at Lynx courses and historically Lynx courses were much more um, in favour with ratings and popularity than traditional parkland or inland courses, it just seemed like an opportunity. Just not being a golfer doesn't mean that you don't have any knowledge about it. And as an opportunity, it looked like it could suit their Historically, Scotland's an island of very windy places, and this is quite windy along the coast. So there's so many comparisons to that sort of type of country, and um, it just looked like it was worth a try. So it was really then we went and talked to the experts who have a mentor in the States that came out. They just heard about it and arrived on the place, and he was fascinated with it. And really, when he said, look, I'll help you get started, um, that convinced me that it could be the way to go. And who was that? Um, like by the name of Mike Kaiser. Right. He owns quite a few of the resorts. He'd probably be the most successful golf course developer in the States. And we've just had a great friendship out and it's grown out of it. So they're in the middle of Wisconsin of doing a big five-course resort right at present. They've been open for a few years and it's just instant success. Yeah. But Richard, it really is when you think about it, it was a very visionary decision to go ahead. Yes, you'd seen, of course, the beautiful courses in Scotland and Ireland and a lot of them are very windswept and interesting. So you had the real foresight, I guess, did you, to think we're going to give this a go here? Yeah, but I think it was between the architects, once we were talking to those and my cars or the prompted me to say I'd underwrite it because it just they said, look, it's potentially so good, like the sites are just so ideal for it, and it's supposed the old thing in life that I didn't want to go to my grave saying, well, I should have done that, it could have been fabulous. Mm. I don't want to leave any of those unanswered questions when I go to the grave, so once you're really convinced and you think it's right, you've just got to go for it. Yeah. Richard, did you, in those very early days when you are still planning it, did you go and look at some of the great golf courses in the world? 
Not really, not until we started. Like I'd pressed the button to go before I really studied them closely. So I was really working on gut feel and the confidence of people like the Kaisers and the Gulf Architects. So yeah, I was Mm. trusting a lot of people. And yet it's interesting. What Can you just give us some context around golf as an industry then? Was it thriving? Because golf as as an activity, as a sport, has had periods, hasn't it, where it's been in the doldrums and there are pressures, at least in cities, on land and water use for golf courses, but I guess they don't apply to you in Tasmania. You you had the land and there's no problem with water. Yeah, well, we're in an isolated area and the local municipal authorities were more than happy to have anything that might work. So the whole process and cooperation from them was fantastic. So you didn't start off and have anyone negative. The state government deputy premier at the time was a golfer and they were all enthusiastic. So you sort of, you get a confidence just out of everyone else's enthusiasm at times. Can we just step sideways a bit? You said you were already really an entrepreneur developing and owning some tourism accommodation. Was it in Tasmania? How did that come about? Um, well, the truth is I started out working in shearing sheds then I became a wool classer and that was pretty hard trekking around the country. So I thought that's not too good. So then I wanted to go farming but didn't have the capital. So oh. I, um, I went into a local fuel distribution business in the south of Tassie to start the ball rolling and then thought, I've got to get into something that's got a bit more scope. And being out of the shearing shed, you always learned how to drink really well. So I knew <laughs> a fair bit about alcohol and fun times. So I thought, well, what's the logical way to capitalise on that? buy a pub. So I set off in that pub game based on that knowledge that I had experienced. I remember going to the liquor licence and commission the first time for a liquor licence. And they said, well, what qualification have you got? I said, oh, I've sat in the bar and watched everything happening for a long time. <laughs> Did that convince them? They said, well, it's part of the way, but we need a little bit more than that. <laughs> So what did you have to do? I had to sort of go and take a traineeship, which I think I did for about two days under a friend that I was playing football with in Hobart. Then I told them that I'd an experienced operator come in and work with me on it, and I'd prepared to nominate him as a licensee, which we never got around to doing anyway, and we just talked our way into it, and next thing we had a legal license. Oh, my goodness. Now, way back in those times, why did you think you went the way of wanting to own your own business, wanting to do your own thing? I would call that being an entrepreneur, perhaps instead of working for others. Was there a particular point where you thought, I want to break out of being an employee or working for someone? Yeah, um, it wasn't until I was about seven years old that I decided I really wanted to do my own thing. (laughs) I suppose I'd seen as a young bloke growing up in rural areas and and it was pretty tough times being sort of post-war. Well, I was born in 51, so it was late 50s, but it was still pretty tough. And father had been a prisoner of war and things weren't easy. So I decided that I wanted to make my own way and, and control it. Even from a young age, like I started growing chickens out before they had frozen chickens for the Christmas market and all that sort of thing. Just wanted to have my own money and have control of my own life. Mm. It must have been very hard for your father to have been a POW. How did that affect family life? Well, it's now, and I know some of my family members don't agree with me talk about it, but I think it's something that's talked about a lot nowadays. And it was just a post-traumatic mm. um, stress level was quite unbelievable from being a pilot towards the end of the war, flying over Germany, and there were just so many shot down. Sort of took a toll on his ability to to really fit back in. So I ended up going into business and then into business with him and 
he died in his early 60s, but the last few years in business when he wasn't under a lot of stress to make decisions, we had a great time. Yeah. So when did you sort of become a farmer? Because you bought that farm and you had cattle there, you were growing potatoes. Was that before or after the tourism? Well, I was wool classic and I came back and I could see the father was struggling a bit and we were on a very small farm just out of Hobart. And I said, look, there's a farm just next door that's got a beautiful old sandstone house in it, pretty dilapidated. But if we bought that, we could sit on it for a few years and cut it up into smaller blocks. And in the end, we agreed and um, he put his money up and I put my bit of money up and we went halves in it, halves in the capital gain. And um, I said, I'll work it. It wasn't a full-time job, so we were still working in Hobart. And I run the farm and... Um, we were away, and that was, wasn't quite enough money in that, even though the capital asset was great. The revenue wasn't so good, and that's when I went into bought a local fuel distribution business. It was about one and a half days' work a week and an old truck and just built that up until it was two men and two trucks flat out. So it was just one of those things that that had to be done to get the cash flow right for the farm, and the farm had to be done to get the capital to build up to start with. So... Just one thing followed on as a logical progression, I suppose, when you look back in business now. Mm. But there was something guiding you to, I mean, perhaps first to say to your father, we should go for this farm next door. And you had the idea to perhaps in future years break it up into smaller lots. I think it was that grim desire to make a dollar. Yeah. And where do you reckon that came from? I mean, your father was damaged, if I can say that. Yeah, I suppose you could say damaged. But were they entrepreneurial? Were they business people, your folks? Well, he, were, he was out of a farming family and they'd been reasonably successful. And um, it's one of those things that you can be in business, but if you're only in a smaller way, you never really make it ahead. Right? Mm. You're, you're just chasing your tail all the time and farming especially. More than most businesses are very small farmers, almost in those days living on the poverty line because there's no margin in it. So that just gave me the desire. I didn't want to. I liked the lifestyle and the idea of it, but I didn't want to be sitting there on a small farm all my life and just battling to make ends meet. Yeah. So when did you really make your first good amount of money that you thought, actually, I'm not just chasing my tail anymore, this is going to work. When and where was that? I think I looked at a lot of little businesses and I think it was when I had the fuel trucks and all of a sudden you could sort of work hard and we worked for the um, fuel company based on a commission and, and cartage. So the more you could cart the furthest distance and sell the most of the your money reward came back and it wasn't like farming. You weren't just a price taker. You were making your own market. And if you're good enough, you could grow it rapidly. And all of a sudden, went from sort of two-day-a-week job that was just subsidising a wage, really, to something that was quite profitable and gave me the money out mm. of that business to buy the first pub without having to interfere with the farm. So, yeah, so I thought you could see that hard work could still get you somewhere. So I thought, well, I wasn't any rocket scientist at school, so it was going to be the hard work way rather than the highly intelligent way. So it just gave me that drive and knew that I had to try and find businesses where you could progress reasonably fast because to get to end goal of a large farm, I had to get into it early. Otherwise, it would be the old story of live poor, die rich. Mm. And how did the Barn Boogle Farm come about? Was it a working farm when you bought it? And oh, by what stage was this? Absolutely. Like before, two years before that, I'd bought a wool growing place in the southern Midlands, the back of Oatlands, and I used that as a stepping stone. And when Barn Boogle came up, it had everything that I wanted. I just didn't realise how run down it was when I bought it, but it was sort of 15,000 acres, running a lot of cattle and sheep, but didn't grow any crops. 
So it was just what I dreamt of. So it was bought from the heart. This was Barnburgle Farm? This was Barnburgle Farm. So it was almost the dream farm that came up at the wrong time. I was still in hotels. I was at a wool growing property as well that I just bought. Just seemed too good to miss. I had to have it. So I was really way up, 100% borrowed. And then the wheels fell off everything. And I thought, well, this is going to be the end. I thought, oh, well, I'll have to start again if it does come to the end. So we just went for it. Wow. 100% borrowed. 100% borrowed, yep. So was that a white-knuckle ride? It was a white-knuckle ride, dearie way. It was, uh, I think I always proved that if you owe the Bank a million dollars, you're in trouble, and if you owe them 10, they're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> it's served a lot of business people well over the years, that adage, hasn't it? But, I mean, quite seriously, we're, we're having a laugh now, but was it an incredibly scary ride, or were you just sort of young enough to think we're going to do it? Yep, I think I was full of confidence and when the ride gets really tough, you just knuckle down and say, well, I'm not going to give you no, I'm going to fight this through. So you just try not to think of the negatives, you just keep looking ahead and trying to find something to make you smarter. Mm. That's when we started growing potatoes as well, remembering that I hadn't sold all the hotels, we had just about sold all the hotels and the day I took possession of Van Bugle, the pilot stroke started, so all the contracts I had on the hotels all fell over. So I was left with hotels, farms. Oh. And no money, so it was really... And heaps of debt. It was tough, and heaps of debt. So I just had to gradually work through it, gradually sell the hotels, sell out of the farming property to keep what I thought was the crown jewels in Van Bogle. Yeah, so just to sort of give some context to people who weren't perhaps around when the pilot strike hit, it was a massive blow for Tasmania, wasn't it? No planes in, so no tourists, no visitors. That was pretty much the situation? Yeah, it was like a really bad version of COVID-19, but the governments weren't interested in supporting. They supported the two major airlines, but they supported no one else, basically. So we were caught in Tasmania with just no one, and... um, no one that was really interested in supporting it. Like when COVID hit, all of a sudden you had job boosters and yeah, job, job keepers. People. And so it was brilliantly done, I think, by a government that became nonpartisan for a while to make sure that there was survival instinct there that everyone could follow and mm. get through, or the majority get through. Whereas the pilot strike, there was just no thought of the repercussions on all the operators and being an isolated island state, you just got the full brunt of it. Yeah. So how long did that really difficult period with the pilot strike last when you were just starting the potato farming and trying to run Barn Burgle at a profit? Well, I, I think it was really from 89 through until 92. Wow. So those three years of just a massive struggle. Because mm, we had the 91 recession as well. So- That's right. Well, I was always say that the pilot strike started that. That was just the Something that happens that starts a recession, usually recessions will start from something that's not necessarily directly related, but just starts a negative tone and that's where it all starts. So how did you knuckle down, buckle down and get through that? Some days I'm not sure. I think it was it was just hard work and being having a good rapport and a good commercial plan with your bankers. So you could sit down with your banker and say, This is what's gonna happen and this is how I believe I can make it happen. This is what I need to do, but I need some support. Yeah. So did they ever call their loans? Oh, they always call their loans. It's the first thing they do. They call their loans and get you back onto a sort of seven-day notice and then say, what are you going to do now? And that's when you have to come up with a plan really quickly. So the ones that wanted to fight the banks would usually fail. You had to have a plan, but you had to have a good, sensible commercial plan. So we had a really good plan of how we were going to go through it, where we were going to get to in the end, why we were doing it. We had youth on our side. I was 39, I think, when I bought Van Bogle. 
so I could show them exactly what the plan was, exactly historically what capital values moved like in farming, like that was probably one of the few times that farming values have collapsed. So the history of was that they weren't bad moves, but the timing was terrible. And you've just got to convince your finances and everyone you're doing business with that you're in a bad timing situation rather than a bad business decision-making. The commercial issues that you haven't got control of, which is the recession and like we got hit the first year with 20% interest rates on a farm that's traditionally running at 4% profit margin. It's a big gap. Huge gap. So oh. when did the potato growing and that side of the farm start to turn around? It was really probably about 95. To start with, we were growing potatoes on joint venture. So really, as a part of convincing the financiers that it was actually a sustainable project, we had to go into a joint venture. We did a joint venture with our cattle fattening right through with the meatworks and the agents that were buying and selling the stock, even down to the Blunston boot factory that was actually, they were involved and they were getting the hides for their boots. So we just put a joint venture together where everyone was working together and you had vertical integration. And then a banker can look at that and say, well, it's a fixed income. It's just like owning a building and leasing it out. You've got a set income, so you've got some sustainable revenue. Whereas if you're just straight out farming, you're at the whims of the weather and all that sort of thing, and you're taking the full risk, which makes the banks nervous. I'd rather a lesser income, but much more proven ability to be sustainable. Yeah. So you had cattle and potatoes. Yep. So we had, at that stage, Barn Burger was running about 4,000 cattle and we were only just starting to grow potatoes, and now we grow sort of five to six thousand ton a year. But we had it was a, a very good operating uh, rural property, so there was tons of scope there. It was just really a matter of the timing was really bad. So you were becoming by the mid nineties, you were becoming a very committed potato farmer. You loved farming, you loved the land. How big did the potato farm become? And are you still a potato farmer? Yeah, we still grow five to six thousand ton. Potato farm is a great story because it's always seen as one of the basic commodities like the Irish potato famine and all that sort of thing. So really, the potato in the operation now, we grow about 250 acres of potatoes, but that's in a 15,000-acre property. So really, the fundamentals of the beef is a much bigger operation and a much more profitable operation than the potatoes, but it's nowhere near as good a story. <laughs> so what do you reckon the story is? Because it's such a staple of life and um, food and... Well, well, people say, well... What makes you so confident? I said, well, when you're all going hungry, I'm going to be pretty good to have steak and chips every night. Mm. And then that's the thing. Like we try and make sure our cattle fattening operation, we are breeding and fattening. We aim to get everything to peak restaurant trade quality. So we know we're right into that top end. So you're getting the rewards that go with it and the ability to negotiate with the meat work. So you're always in a positive position where they sort of need you as well. You're not just back to the old traditional price taker. You mm. become an important part and you work closely with them. Yeah. So if I've got this straight, you're saying cattle is still the biggest money earner on your farm? Oh, yes. As well as potatoes, and then golf yep. comes in a, a distant third? No. Oh, no. We would think that we keep the golf as a separate issue. So the golf, I suppose, is probably now, it's on par with the farm in my mind, uh, but probably it's more profitable, but it's it's almost higher risk and you've just got to be a good operator. To make Barnburg work, we've got to be really good operators because if we're relying on 80% revisitation, then we've got to make sure that everyone's happy when they come, they're happy with their game, they're happy with the hospitality. So it's really 
we look at it as a hospitality industry, it's not golf. Golf just happens to be the reason that they're here. We've got to give them a good time. Yeah. Whereas most golf clubs just, you're there because it's the club and you play there and if the hospital is really poor, doesn't matter. Exactly. But we have to get it all right. You won't come back if the if the whole experience isn't good. So you would say, though, you are a successful potato farmer, you're a successful cattle farmer, and you're a successful golf and leisure and hospitality developer. I suppose I'd like to think that, yes. Let's move back to the golf story. Was Barn Boogle as a golf story, was that always a big vision for you, even at the beginning, given that you had these other businesses? No, golf was only a part of it. Like along the coastline, I was hoping to have right in close to Bridport, we were going to put a canal subdivision in and have holiday homes around canals and that sort of thing. Like we had some grand ideas. So golf was just part of it. We were going to have a tennis resort as well, camping grounds because you could see the trends with the older people getting a camper and taking off around the world that was happening everywhere else other than Australia. So we had plans of all that sort of thing, big campgrounds and so what's happened to those plans for the tennis and the camping grounds? Um, I think I've golf's taken over and I haven't worried about the others. We're just working now on a project to build some beach houses. It's, that's probably 12 months away, but we're looking to the next leg of it. So it's not just solely golf, but the golf's been so successful. And we've just hit a spot where we got instant recognition and fabulous repeat business that we thought, well, why go and risk something else if we were on a winner with the golf and it's so much suited to the land um, that that took over as be the dominant thing. So in a windy area, you probably chances of a very successful tennis resort is probably not as good, whereas golf was more suited. How did you come to the view that it must be a world-class course, that it needed to be ranked in the top international courses? Was that all part of the plan to sort of, you know, because you knew you had to attract people, I guess, mainly from the mainland? Well, I did say the architects when we first started, and I said, I hope this will be in the best five courses in Tasmania. And I said, well, geez, we're happy and we'll do a lot better than that. So at that stage, I didn't know what success was in golf and how important the ratings were. I knew we had to do it properly, so we had to really rely on it. And when I agreed to underwrite, I just, and the architects, architects handed a contract over. I said, well, what's this? Oh, it's a contract for the design and supervision. I said, but I don't know anything about golf. What's the use of me reading that? If we can't do this on trust, then I'm not going to do it. So we ripped the contract up and threw it in the bin. And we really? did a handshake and we've trusted each other ever since. You ripped the contract up? And threw it in the bin and said, if we can't trust each other, then we're better off not to do it. Mm. And has that worked out? And it's worked out brilliantly. And when we went from the first architect to the second, Mike Kaiser was talking to Paul Credshaw and said, look, don't go out there and think that man's going to sign a contract. If you have a rapport <laughs> and you work working together, then it will work. And if you don't, don't do it. And that's exactly how it went. When the third course we've done and we've done through the pandemic and we've done it without Bill Paul coming other than for his initial sighting of an, and rough design, we did it all by remote control. So you've got to be adaptable. You mentioned just briefly before, but if you could just elaborate a little bit on how you funded it at the start. I mean, did banks walk a mile? Were they not interested? Were other investors not interested in backing golf course dream? First of all, I went to farming bankers and 
because we'd done such a good job on the, the farm, you know, we had equity there that we could use for the golf course. And I explained to them how we could put that in there. I didn't want them to be vulnerable to the successful failings of the golf course. So we used their farming assets to actually borrow money. We went to the government and said, look, if we were building this anywhere else, we'd have a beautiful infrastructure of power, storage, water. So we asked for a grant for that. And then we said, and you should help us fund it because we could create a new business that could be world-class if it goes as well as the architects say. So we really went around anywhere that would lend money and borrowed it. And there were other small investors in the first course, but they tended to sit on their hands. And once I said I'd underwrite it, they were so happy for me to step back and have to keep tossing in. And really, remembering at the time, I didn't necessarily want to be even a shareholder in the leasehold of it. They were happy if they operated the golf course, but they, none of them wanted to put enough money in to make to be substantial. And they didn't want to keep putting it in. And traditionally, something like that, you can estimate the cost of it, but it never ends up at that. Usually about halfway there. So it was a matter of using the, I suppose, experience to borrow money and provide enough confidence in the financiers to get it. And a very cooperative government, I must say. Yeah. So sorry, it was your funds, but you borrowed them? Yes. But then we, we had to borrow them from outside. So I said to these other investors, in the construction of the golf course, when we open the golf course, the golf company itself has got to be debt free. So it's got to be equity put in. So you could borrow if you want to, they wanted to borrow against their house, but they had to put the money in, so there was no securities. The day we opened the first golf course, there were no securities held against the golfing company. It was debt-free, and that was the only way to eliminate the risk because I said, what will happen? Because we're taking a big risk. Everyone will say, they'll go broke, they'll go broke. And um, everyone did say that, and I said, well, probably not because we're debt-free. I saw in the early days in the hotel game, like there was a beautiful big hotel built in Hobart, which was the biggest hotel in Hobart, and was built by a Japanese company and it was under financial pressure in the early days because it was that overcapitalized it. Mm. Not that they'd done anything wrong, they overcapitalized it. But people stopped going to that hotel because it had a reputation that was going broke. Oh, really? Not because it wasn't good enough. No. It was because oh, it just had a reputation, became a negative reputation and something that people do just to spur of the moment, say so where we stay, what we do, it's always where they feel best. They oh, don't go there, it's going broke. They don't say oh, it's going broke because it's too cheap, so it's great value. People don't think like that, yeah. they think the negative. But that was amazing that you said, look, it's got to be debt-free and that you could do that, the actual golf part of it, because it would have needed fairly heavy investment in the first place to develop and build, you know, world-class golf links. Absolutely, yeah. I run the debt back up on the farming, and I can tell you that. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, but it's a matter of just making sure you can do it. And the sort of the government they were prepared to put the money in, so didn't wasn't secured against that company. Yeah, how quickly did Barnburgle become a success? Because you obviously did have to attract players from other parts oh, to Tassie. It seemed like an eternity before we could say we were successful. It was probably six or eight weeks. Really, it was instant because it was something that had never been done in Australia. There's been a lot of golf courses built that had memberships and that were close to the big cities, but it was never anything that was all was unique within that golfing field. So people just had to come and have a look. And once they'd seen it once, we knew we were going to get them back and everyone was prepared to come and give it a chance yeah. for the first time because we'd actually got a lot of interest out of the US. Having an American golf architect or American and Australian architect, an American developer that was rapidly becoming famous over there. So we've got enormous coverage in America. 
Australians who, geez, Americans, they picked this um, boogle up, it must be all right. Before we started, there'd been no Australian golf course on the cover of an American magazine, and we've been on three of the four major ones in the first 18 months. Congratulations. So we were actually, it was the positivity of it, I think, that really got it going. Everyone's like, well, you got to go down there. You can't believe they've done this deal on a so-called spud farm. Yeah. So I, I knew that to get awareness, you've got to have a good story. Yeah, good story. so the narrative, the, the narrative, narrative of being, being a spud the... farm. If I was a, rich, a wealthy beef baron, that would be nowhere near as interesting. <laughs> that's yeah, that's precisely it, really. what you were. <laughs> you were well, a wealthy beef baron. I, I wasn't wealthy then, but we were doing pretty well. But yeah. you have to create a story. It's just like yeah. if you want the American press to write about your course, you've got to get someone to write the article for them, then you give it to them, and then it's easy to publish because they don't have to do any homework. Yeah, but it's still interesting, Richard, that, you know, you, you said you really, it, it was a bit of a whim. There was no market research done on this, whether people would come to, you know, the windswept northeast of Tassie. We had seen in the 80s, if I remember rightly, a number of golf course kind of tourism resorts in Queensland along different parts of their coast. The Japanese got very involved in that. Now, they didn't become the huge success that Barnboogle has become, did they? Another probably bigger companies and just weren't as aware of those little small facts and customer satisfaction that you have to do to get going. Because really, I can remember saying to these minor investors, I said, we are not spending money on marketing. I'm not going to spend a penny on marketing because that's just incurring more cost. If our product's not good enough to sell itself, then we'd be better off to lock the doors after 12 months. So we, first 12 months, I think we spent $350 on advertising. Editorial support is so important. So this editorial support was very important, being on the golf magazine covers and, and the rankings. How important are the rankings, both Aussie and world? Uh, the rankings are really important in hindsight, but I didn't worry about them too much at that early stage. We just wanted to be somewhere that people came, had a great fun on. I probably realised in the early days when there was a, one of the locals came out and we had a day for locals. Really nice bloke, attractive wife, and he, after he came in off the 18th, he threw his bag down. I said, do you want a beer? He said, yep. I said, how'd you go? He said, that was better than sex. And I thought, well, <laughs> if it's that good and he's got an attractive wife, I might be on the right track. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, well, that's your good litmus test. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely so. <laughs> I was going to ask you, can you remember the feeling when, when you launched and you know, when you started to get this reaction from players and customers and when you, when did you really know this is going to work and work really well? Well, I think at the opening we had, there'd been an opening of a course, Cape Kidnappers in New Zealand and Tom Dyke, the architect, had brought a lot of his journalistic friends out and they went from Cape Kidnappers over to Tassie and they were here the day before it opened and... There were some blokes there that were right at the top end of the golfing press in America, and there was the president of Shinnecock Hills, which is one of the top five courses in the world. And he said, came up to me and said, this place is amazing. This is just something special. So I knew that at the top end of golf, I knew it was special. I just had to convince all the punters that it was special as well and get that repeat business. So it was really, became then very crucial what we did, what service we provided, what charges we gave, because I remember it was a bloke, well-known bloke, Jeff Kennett was down here. He left. He said, every time I go leave my unburglar, I don't feel like I've been ripped off. I thought that was a beautiful summary of how I tried to price the product so that you're trying to get as much money as you can out of the customer and still be fair, but you don't want them to think they're ripped off because they won't come back yeah. again. Yeah. So it wasn't a it wasn't a Carmel Pebble Beach kind of no. pitched 
Absolutely. Like we say, we are the cheapest course to play in the top 100 in the world. And there's probably a return on capital. We're probably well up there with them as well. It's interesting, though. I mean, you you know, for Northern Hemispherians, you are at the bottom end of the world. So Absolutely. I guess, you know, there has to be something that uh, attracts them down here well, for I, a start. I, but- I can remember on a documentary that did for one of the American cable networks and they started out and said, here we are at the end of the civilised earth. <laughs> I said, well, hang on a minute. This is my yeah, exactly. home. Exactly. I, I, I hope is- you took offence on <laughs> our behalf. I did take offence and, and I told them. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Look, just a couple more things about this, perhaps the early days. How did the Barn Boogle, I guess, the business model evolve? Did you always intend having uh, different sorts of accommodation, restaurants, a great wine cellar, and and now a hotel and and even this series of golf courses? I think that the back of my mind, I had that, that if, if it was good enough, we'd keep developing it. But it's the ideas at the time that you come up with, like with the wine cellars. I've been around a couple of places and they had wine cellars that you could view from the restaurant, even if you weren't allowed into them. It just made you feel good. So I thought, well, we'll do that. So at Lost Farm Restaurants, we put one in for red wine. I said, well, why don't we put one in for white wine and we'll just cool it to a lower temperature so people can go in and view what they could potentially drink. And once you can get them, with well, probably once you get them to walk into the wine cellar, they will probably spend 30 to 50 percent more on a bottle of wine as they would if they just picked it off the list because they, so get, they get involved in it. Mm. And so having people involved in the golf and in the wine, a sports bar where they can watch 24 screens and every different sport that's going and they feel involved, they never feel alone. So it's really trying to entertain them. It's just hospitality. Mm. When you started really scaling up Barn Boogle, what was the real step change in that? Was was it just having this brilliant course or was it having the these other add-on things? I think the, the great course was probably 80% of it, 70% of it. And the other was entertaining them, give them good value, reasonable accommodation, a fun restaurant, a good staff that are prepared to laugh and joke and have a good time. So it really becomes a combination of the golf and the general hospitality. So how important is customer to you? Customers, everything. Like without them, we're nothing. But we couldn't rely on having customers if we weren't making the effort to make their time special. So we can't just send them out to golf and say, hope you have a good time and that's it. We've got to, got to be more involved with them, friendlier with them and give them the entertainment. Like at the end of the day, they're playing golf for four to five hours, 24 hours in a day, so we mm. want them to enjoy the rest of it as well. We can get them to sleep for eight hours at best if they're excited, mm. so we've got to be able to do something for the rest of the time. So you'd made Barn Boogle, the Dunes, the Lynx course a success. Then you decided to do it all over again with developing the sister course in Lost Farm. Just briefly, what was the story with Lost Farm? Why was that so crucial to you? And how did you view it uh, sort of to be additional to Barn Boogle? I think that trying to get a critical mass is the thing. And if you go into a lot of the cities, you've got a critical mass of golf courses so they can go and play multiple courses. But I was worried that if they could come down to Barn Boogle and only play one course and then leave again, we mightn't get the continuity of business. We needed to become not just a golf course, but a golfing destination. So it was important to actually make the second course as good as the first and to make sure that people come down and when they come down, they say, oh, we're not going to play just Bamboo Dunes, which is rated highly. We're going to play the other one as well. 
because that's nearly as good or is as good. I've noticed that in Scotland and Ireland, that there's a lot of courses, the most famous courses, all got a secondary course, but the majority of them are no good or very much second rate compared with the champion course. So we said, well, we're going to have to go out and we're going to have to replicate the quality of the first in the second to make it a true destination that people want to come down and play golf at both. Otherwise, they'll come and play at the highly rated one and the secondary one, they'll just leave off. And then you're not quite entertaining them and you've got less chance of catching their imagination to return every year. Richard, that is a great place to take a break and we've got so much more to talk about. So I want to come back in part two next week and talk to you more about particularly some of the drama that happened over Lost Farm. So we'll get into that in part two of our chat. So join me next week in part two of my chat with Richard Sattler when Richard reveals the pain of legal problems, building a third course during the COVID pandemic and the fear of losing it all. That's next week in Build It Thou Come. I hope you enjoyed Build It Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.